they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the convention center in Portland Mm -hmm. when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And the columnist, you know, he he had highlighted the, he called it a palpable irony, which is what I, I named my first book, Palpable Irony, for that reason. He said it is a palpable irony that the, the folks who had devoted their lives to help people get clean and sober would have theirs cut short by a drunk driver. Hmm. And then he said something at the end of that article that changed my life forever and set everything into motion for the next, what would be 17 and a half years in prison. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. Well, welcome back to the Stacking Days podcast, where we highlight underrepresented journeys of sobriety. I'm your host, as always, Ray Donovan, and I'm extremely excited today uh, because we have a brother who's coming on that I've been following for for quite some time. It's funny, uh, we talked a little bit before the episode, and he was wondering why I hadn't reached out to him sooner. Uh, and that's partially because I just look at how uh, how busy he is, and I didn't want to impede on all, on any of the good work that he's doing. But I was in a little bit of a bind recently from the standpoint of getting guests on, and I reached out to Martin, and he just said, 100%, I'm in. And so I'm so excited to have you on, Martin, to, to chat about your story, man. Thank you so much to, to joining us here on Stacking Days. Absolutely, Ray. The pleasure is all mine. And again, it's been a long time coming for me to be on this this podcast, and I'm just honored to be here today. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Um, so let's get right into it. Let's go all, go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, you know, looking you know in the in the rearview mirror on where your relationship with alcohol started, and if there were some you know some pieces that kind of predated that first sip, feel free to share, and then we'll kind of get into your story chronologically from there. Absolutely. So I'm actually going to share something here that that I've actually not shared, frankly, on on any podcast or in any public setting. But I, th- I think it's apropos here um, on this uh, BIPOC um, podcast and platform. So I grew up just for context. I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 80s. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of people when they think about Portland, if they've never been there today, they think about Portland as you know, keep Portland weird mantra. And, you know, we have the naked bike rides and uh, Portland has been very much gentrified um, over the last uh, two or three decades. And so let me just say at that time, it was a very different Portland. It Mm. was, it was, they had gangs coming up from California. I remember, you know, in the early eighties, there were certain gang members, really big name gang members that I had never heard of. And then I heard, oh, they're from California and they're coming up kind of trying to claim this space in the mm-hmm. inner city of Northeast Portland. So there was a lot of drive-by shootings. Um, you know, there was prostitution that was rampant. There was drug, you know, crack, the crack epidemic that, that um, you know, that, that hit America, uh, black America. And so so there was that. Right. However, Mm. my parents were very loving and nurturing. And so my dad had my twin brother and me. He had us in uh, Little League Baseball. We played for five years. We played Pop Warner football. He had us in the wrestling. He had us in Cub Scouts and this this Cub Scouts um, uh, part of my life, if you will, was where things started to look a little different for me in terms of how I uh, came to understand my blackness or to see my blackness. Mm. And so to kind of flesh that out. So our Cub Scout meetings would take place 
about 15 minutes from where we lived. And 15 minutes away was a middle class, predominantly white neighborhood. And so I remember we would drive to those neighborhoods and, you know, it was night and day. There were manicured lawns, you know, the streets and sidewalks were, were free of trash. They had newer vehicles in their driveways. Their houses were clean and smelled really good, like freshly baked cookies. I mean, it was like this, this utopian space that we were entering into. Mm. And I remember, you know, I was maybe like nine or 10 years old, maybe 11 at the most. And I remember kind of thinking when we would come back from some of those meetings and in my pre-adolescent brain, the way I process this contrast between how those folks lived and how we lived and anybody who looked like me, frankly, was that it had to admit that something was inherently wrong with me mm. and anyone who looked like me. If basically every white person that I saw at that time were allowed to live in those pristine neighborhoods mm. while everyone who looked like myself and my family were confined frankly to live in very different conditions yeah and so that man i just remember that starkly and that, and that kind of not kind of it did take a toll on me and how i saw myself and i think that was kind of the basis of my lack of self-esteem lack mm. of a healthy self-concept and really kind of you know it almost put a ceiling on my life in terms of, am I going to be able to, to be more than this? Can I possibly live um, in that pristine neighborhood? Can I, you know, uh, it, you know, get a job that would allow me to, um, you know, to drive those nice cars and things like that. And, and frankly, there, there was nothing around me that would suggest that, that those things were possible. And I'm mm. like nine or 10 years old. And so that was, was kind of the basis for for where, where things would eventually go um, several years later. So I'll just continue. So well, 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 well Martin, before you continue, I, I do want to just like I got to stop there and, and call this out because, you know, you're eight, nine, 10 years old and you're having this this this, um, you know, existential crisis, you know, as a kid around already around what your potential could look like in life based on the parameters of the world around you. And I think that that's really important to note because that to me is in some ways cultural and, and unique, you know, to, to people of color who are growing up in these spaces where, you know, we look at our parents, we look at our grandparents, we want to succeed, but things around us are constantly telling us that your vision and idea of what that success could look like perhaps is unattainable for you. And to start recognizing that at such a young age when you were just nowhere even close to being fully developed is is harsh. It's extremely harsh. So I feel you on that. I mean, I've actually spent some time in Portland in, um, in my 20s. And I don't think a lot of folks recognize even like how racially tense Portland, Oregon can be. I remember I was doing um, I was doing door-to-door -door sales. I'll make this story real short. I was doing door-to-door -door sales. I was selling credit card processing machines to, to small businesses. So essentially walking into salons, walking into you know convenience stores and selling uh, credit card processes, the things that you swipe credit card on. My territory in Portland happened to be Lake Oswego. And for anybody who, who knows Lake Oswego, here I am, the six foot one, you know, inch black dude walking around with a suit and tie and a, and, and a shoulder strap bag around Lake Oswego by myself all day long. 
turns out they, they so folks ended up putting calls in 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 on me you know that i'm walking around this neighborhood that looks a lot like the neighborhoods that you had just kind of laid out and come to find out after you know the cops showed up i left you know very quickly from that neighborhood i came to find out that lake oswego's nickname was lake no negro and when i and and, and when i heard that i was like Wow. And that's just always, always stuck in my mind. So when you start talking about your experience as an eight, nine year old boy being in these spaces that, you know, are not for you, that is that that has a lot of impact that resonates with me because I could put myself in your shoes, even though I was there, you know, several decades after you experienced that. Yeah. And and just, you know, to let you know, Lake Oswego is even even more affluent than the neighborhood that we had driven into 15, 15 miles away or 15 minutes away. Um, so I definitely know what you mean uh, when you paint that picture about Lake Oswego, especially at that time. No yeah. question. You you experience racism. Any person yeah. of color, frankly, would have uh, certainly at that time. And, and frankly, even uh, uh, today. Yeah. Um so yeah, so 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 that was that was kind of uh, the 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 very beginning of of how I came to see myself, mm. and so uh, moving forward a little bit. But but aside from that, um, you know, things at home were were very normal. We had Christmases, we had you know birthdays, we got new clothes at the beginning of every school year. My dad worked really hard uh, at the shipyards and and at Freightliner to take care of the family, a family of six. My mom could not work because she was ill. And so we were, by and large, taken care of um, with all the, ne the necessities um, uh, at that time. So around age 14 or at age 14, rather, I was going into high school and I was a terribly shy kid. Right. And we know that when we get to high school, uh, like you have to have kids to hang out with. You cannot be a loner. That is that is basically having a death sentence hanging over your head if you are a loner. So I would basically kind of attach myself to other guys who looked like me, who came, came from my neighborhood, but I had never met. And I'm thinking my parents probably did everything they could to keep us from mingling with these kids. But this, you know, these are my guys. They, they, they look like me. They come from where I come from. We're the same age. So, so I'm going to hang out with these guys. And so I remember we had, we had attached ourselves. I say my, my brother, and myself had attached ourselves to another guy who was one year older than us, wildly popular. He happened to be a gang member. Um, and we we would hang out with him and he would take us to these parties and these other kids, 16, 17, 18 year old kids were there. And I remember he handed my brother and me a beer and he goes off into the to crowd to talk to other kids. And we're looking at each other with these beers in our hands and thinking like, we can't drink these because mom and dad would, would kill us, right, if they found out. But we also had kind of made the mental calculation, I think, that if we don't drink these beers, that, you know, we, we're not going to be able to hang out with these kids, right? And so mm -hmm. I remember cracking that beer. I don't know what kind of beer it was, but I remember taking a few swigs and almost, you know, gagged and coughed it up because it was utterly disgusting. Yeah. But I remember my, my chest got warm. You know, so I'm, I'm starting to heat up physiologically. And then I remember within a matter of like minutes, it seemed like all my inhibitions came down. My shyness went away. I'm able to, you know, freely talk to people. I'm actually able to talk to girls, which which I had not done to that point. It was just terrified me to think about talking to a girl that I thought was cute. And so initially that was kind of my infatuation with alcohol. 
And so for the next couple of years, that's kind of how it progressed. So around age 16 is when things started to take a, a more darker, darker turn. And so, again, having that basis of, of, of seeing myself as a, as a black kid in America and what that was going to look like. So we know that, that, that um, from a psychosocial standpoint, which I later learned when I got my education, that we go through identity formation uh, between ages uh, 14 and 19. So, so teenagers will typically start to try on new identities to see which one you know, they could be comfortable in. So like I went from wearing baggy gangster clothes, you know, uh, uh, talking to talk, you know, to, to, to fit in with this, you know, with this, you know, with this group that I was hanging out with. And then I would also, I remember we had, a, I had a part-time job at, a, at an ice cream parlor after school because my parents were big on us kids working hard for our money. I remember we had summer jobs when we were 14 to make money to buy the name brand clothing that we wanted at school mm -hmm. time, right? And so we always worked. We had part-time jobs after school. And I worked at an ice cream parlor in, in Northeast Portland. It's not there any, anymore today. But all of my coworkers were white. And I remember I would hang out with them after work and we would go shoot pool or go bowling or something like that. And I, I had a, a, a backpack and I would change into Tommy Hilfiger attire, uh, Ralph Lauren Polo, right? These things that symbolize to me, middle class, white, um, you know, greatness, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. And, and, and I wanted that so desperately. And so I would hang out with them, wear these clothes, you know, pronounce, you know, all of my INGs, you know, talk the talk, to to gain their acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. To make me feel that I was somebody more than than this inner city black kid living in the in the hood with you know uh, with no potential to to be anything more. And so I'm literally Ray, literally navigating between two identities, right? Where I would hang out with my homies and and talk the talk and be the gangster, you know, sell the sell crack cocaine, carry the handgun, do all of this, and. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm also looking to emulate middle class white America because that, you know, that was where I really, really wanted to be. Mm. And so I'm struggling internally with this with this 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 conflict of not knowing who I am, frankly, because neither identity w was me. Right. Yep. Um, so it's very unhealthy identity formation process for me. And frankly, had I had like. A, a therapist or even like a school counselor or somebody to kind of walk me through or even my parents, um, you know, God bless them. But they just that's not the way they grew up with talking yeah. about mental health and, and you know, psychology and, and psychosocial development and all these things. And so I am I am struggling within and I don't feel there's any way to turn. And at that point, alcohol became my best friend. It was a way to, you know, the classic numb your feelings and, you know, kind of get away from it all. And I remember, Ray, I was 16 years old. By this point, I'm a full blown alcoholic. We would go to the corner store before school at seven o'clock in the morning. We would steal Mad Dog 2020. We would drink it on the way to school. By lunchtime, we were going by 40s. Um, we would have people obviously buy it for us. We couldn't buy it ourselves. We'd pay them like a dollar or two and we could pretty much get anything we wanted in my mm -hmm. neighborhood. And I would drink after school. And I remember I would go home and it was four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm 16 years old. I got a 40 ounce. I would shut my door, lock it, turn on some some sad music, you know, some Jodeci or, or, or Usher or something sad. Mm -hmm. And I would drink this 40 and just look out my window in, in, in utter misery. 
mm. because I am depressed. I feel that that, that I am never going to be anything but but what I am now. And frankly, I I don't want to I don't want to deal with that. And mm. so that was when I knew, and I knew right. I knew at 16, 17 years old that I was dependent on alcohol. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter because it got me through my day and, and it allowed me to not think about, um, you know, the, the bleak outlook that I had on my life at that point. Yeah, uh, I, I feel you on that. I mean, I, I have also had days where I was drinking Mad Dog 4040 looking out of a window. I, I mean, when you said that, I just had a you know flashback. Um, yeah, man. I mean, that's that's a, a, a very challenging place to be. Um I think that you, you, what you're saying probably resonates with a bunch of folks who are listening to this, right? That may, and you know, we don't talk about these things out loud. This is a 16 year old kid dealing with grown man issues, right? And you're sitting there trying to figure out how am I going to, how am I going to manage my way through this thing? And the only effective tool that you can kind of put your hand on, literally and figuratively, is the bottle. Um, so I get it, you know, medicating your way through that pain. And then obviously it's, then you get into this vicious cycle where, you know, the, the alcohol is actually adding more insult to the injury that you, you know, that you're already trying to heal from. Exactly. Because I later learned, you know, once I uh, started working on my clinical stuff to get certified as a counselor, that alcohol is a depressant, it, yeah. is a depressant. Which is why, right, when you first started drinking, you, you just feel, you know, juiced up and you feel energized and you feel stimulated. And then the longer you drink, you're, you're you know, you're just a, a, a ball of, you know, you're just a mess. Right. Yeah. You're crying and you're just sad and, you know, and, and because it, it it is a depressant. So if you are feeling depressed and you think alcohol is going to kind of lift you up and make you feel better, it may initially. But the longer you drink is definitely going to have that depressant effect. And so that was that was how things persisted for the next three years. So at age 19, my friends and I, uh, by that time, our, our, our criminal behavior had escalated from stealing cars, uh, you know, a couple burglaries and things like that had escalated into uh, armed robberies. Mm. And so I actually went to prison at 19 for my part, actually, in setting up that that ice cream parlor that I worked at during high school, mm-hmm. I set them up to be robbed because I quit on bad terms because I felt that the owner was not treating me fairly because I was black. Mm-hmm. And so my way to exact revenge was to set them up to be robbed. And so I set them up. Um, my buddies uh, physically carried out the robbery. Several months later, we were all rounded up. And I um, ended up taking a plea bargain for that for five and a half years. Uh, I ended up serving three and a half years. And so I got out when I was 22 years of age. While I was in, I totally made the decision. You know, my family was by my side throughout that time. They came to visit me. They supported me. Um, They encouraged me to get my GED, you know, to turn over a new leaf. So I did that, right? I got my GED. I became a tutor. I'm going to church in prison at the time. Uh, but I, at that time they didn't have any, uh, treatment programs. Right. Mm. And so, and so I felt that I was doing enough at that point to get out of prison, to get a job, go to school, to put my life together. Right. Um, even though I knew coming in that I had a problem with alcohol, I knew that. Right. I just felt that if I did enough other things, 
maybe, you know, I didn't need a formal treatment program. So I get out at 22 years of age. I returned to my parents' house. I immediately got a job at a warehouse. And I, uh, because I was on supervision, I was required to do two nights a week at, a, um, at, a, at a, an outpatient program in downtown Portland. So I did that for six months. And then I enrolled in community college courses at Portland, Portland Community College because I wanted to become a nurse. Mm-hmm. And so and so and so these things are going well. I saved up five thousand dollars. I went to an auction. I got my first car. You know, my girlfriend, I met a girl three or four months out of prison, moved in with her in Vancouver, Washington. She taught me how to drive. I'm proud. I get my license. You know, I'm paying all my bills. I got a nice car. You know, I'm getting a couple raises at work. I'm going through school. Like on the surface, everything looked good. Mm. However, um, the issue was that at 22 years of age, 22, 23, you know, it, 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 I felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. I felt like something was missing because even though I'm doing all these great things, my buddies in the hood, even though I had moved away, um, they're going to clubs every weekend. You know, they're having house parties or doing all this stuff. I felt that I was missing out. Right. This what FOMO, I think they call it fear of missing out. Yeah. And so and, and so in my brain, because, again, I hadn't had any formal treatment or anything like that, I convinced myself that I can still hang out with my guys. These are my guys. Right. Childhood right. friends, the ones who didn't go to prison, because, frankly, five of us had gone to prison for these robberies. Mm. And so these guys. So I said, I'm going to hang out with my guys. I'm not going to drink. Right. I don't want to drink. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm going to have a good time. And, you know, so I can kind of I can kind of split the baby. Right. But we know that, you know, I don't most people know the saying, if you hang out in the barbershop long enough, like you're going to get a haircut. That's just (laughs) that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. So so after hanging out a few times, I started to, you know, drink a little bit and I'm like, oh, I can manage it. You know, I'm I'm, I got so much stuff going on in my life that's good. I can, you know, dabble a little bit together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and so, but, but, but as an alcoholic, your brain is not going to be satisfied with one or two drinks. It wants, you know, 15, 20, 30. And so before I know it at this point, now I am drinking and driving, um, Mm. literally every day. Right. And because I never gotten a ticket, I never got pulled over, you know, again, that's confirmation to me that I've got this under control. I'm doing okay. And I was out for 19 months and after drinking and driving for 19 months, um, everything came to um, a very abrupt, catastrophic halt on New Year's Eve of 2003. Yeah. And and we're going to get into that. And, you know, for, for those who, who don't know your story, this is almost where a lot of people know your story starts. But clearly, you know, there's always so much uh you know, that precedes the moment where that that one's life takes a turn, right? Either for the better or for the worse. And um, but before we, we we get there, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I have a couple questions. One, I know that you have a twin brother. I've heard you talk about about him uh, on, on other shows. Was your brother kind of running in parallel with you as far as, you know, a lot of activity behavior? And was he also you know, struggling with a lot of the same internal conflicts that you were feeling at the time? A very good, very good question. So number one, yes, we were attached at the hip from, you know, well, throughout life. But when I, when I started to drink at 14, 15, 16, and it escalated, he was right there with me. He got into the same trouble. 
Um, you know, he was drinking 40s and Mad Dog 2020 and all of that. He changed, however, um, at 18 years of age. I went to prison at 19, but at 18, he said, I don't I don't want to keep going this way. He went to Job Corps and okay. he put all of his energy into becoming a carpenter, which he is now a foreman today. You know, he's been in carpentry for what, you know, almost 30 years now. And so that was kind of his fork in the road. And he went that way. So when I went to prison at 19, he had his life very much on track in his apprenticeship, you know, doing what he needed to do um, to, to, to give himself a chance to, to succeed. As far as the internal struggles, not at all. My brother and mm. I, even though we're twins, we are very different in that way because I was very superficial. I had to have the nice clothes. I had to have the nice car. I had to have the pretty girls. And he just wasn't that way. Mm. Like, and he's never been that way. And God bless him. I, th- I think that was a buffer for him to to not fall into alcoholism because, you know, we, we drink for different reasons. Right. And yep. people become alcoholics um, or, or become addicted to alcohol for different reasons. And so it's, 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 it's not it's not necessarily I mean, certainly the frequency um, with which we drink is you know, it's something to be considered when it when it comes to assessing whether or not we have a problem with alcohol or not. But really getting getting to understand the why we drink is is really much more uh, critical to understand in terms of do I have a healthy relationship with alcohol or not? Yeah. And so I was drinking for a very different reason than he was. I think it's so important to highlight that because we were talking about this before the show. Oftentimes folks look at the black community and you said this and I agree with you as a monolith. Right. And we are not a monolith within our own community. And we are we are all individuals so much so that identical twins are also, you know, experiencing life very differently. They come from you come from the same household, have had the same upbringing and a lot of the same experiences to a certain point. But, you know, but your whys are different. Right. And and for you, it sounds as though that you where you were where you thought you were finding your self-worth may not necessarily aligned with where your brother even was uh, evaluating where his self-worth was coming from. And and, and that's where the, the split in the road came from. I, I always think that's really interesting because I, I mean, I have a, a sibling who's you know two years younger than me and and we've had a lot of the same experiences growing up. We might as well have been twins, even though we're two years apart. And, you know, she hasn't suffered from the same dependencies that I have, um, you know, in, in, in her life. So I think it's just important for folks to recognize that, you know, there are a lot of similarities out there, but we're all independent people and our whys are unique to us. And which is why at the end of the day, you know, sometimes it takes a little a, a little more than someone from the outside telling you that you need to step away from it because they, they, those those things are so deeply ingrained within who we are as individuals. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and so just for clarification, so my brother and I were fraternal twins, okay. but, um, but we, I mean, you know, my mom dressed us alike you know, as babies <laughs> and toddlers and we were always together and doing the same thing. And I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's my best friend and, um, and we are extremely close and, and we've always been really, really close. And he supported me through all of these adversities that I frankly, you know, inflicted upon my life. But, um, yeah, we're really, really close and um, but very different in many ways. That's awesome, man. Um, so let's get back on track with 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 your your journey here. Walk us through New Year's and we'll and we'll take it from there. Sure. So it was New Year's Eve of 2003. The day started off like any normal day. 
so I lived in Vancouver, Washington with my girlfriend, which is about a half hour from Portland, just right over the bridge. Mm-hmm. And so I left work at about, you know, 630 in the morning to 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 um to be to work on time by seven, kissed her goodbye, went to work. Now we had gotten off work early because of the holiday. So we 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 got off work at about eleven o'clock that morning. And I remember this, you know, like it was yesterday. We're kind of wrapping things up for the day and we're ready to clock out. And my boss had just casually joked with us, you know, we're talking about everybody's plans for New Year's Eve. And he was like, now you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but you know, do not end up on the front page of the newspaper. And of course, you know, we chuckled, we, we laughed it off and clocked out for the day. And, you know, but, but here we are 20, little over 20 years later, you know, I've never, ever, ever forgotten those, those prophetic words. Mm. So I left work at 1130 that morning. I remember I went straight to the liquor store, I had $10 in my pocket because we, we were going to get paid the next day or two days later. And so I'm at the end of my, my, my pay period. And, um, I take my last $10 I buy a fifth of, of gin. We called it bumpy face back then because the bottle was kind of bumpy. And mm. uh, I went to my parents' house, hang out with my twin brother. You know, he cut my hair because he's a great barber, still is today. But I had to get ready for, for New Year's Eve. So he's cutting my hair. I'm drinking the alcohol. We're kind of killing some time hanging out. And then we had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy that we had gone to high school with, hadn't seen him in you know a couple of years. So we was like, oh, this would be great. We get to see him, see a bunch of old classmates. So it's now about, I don't know, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. I finished that entire fifth of gin by myself. And this was so routine for me every single day, no matter what, like clockwork. I had to go and buy four 24 ounce cans of, of old English. That was my, that was my, that was my, my beer, it's like 8.3%. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get the most bang for my buck. So I went to the store. I bought the four 24-ounce cans of old, old old English. I drank those over the course of the next three or four hours. So it's now about 8 o'clock. So then my brother and I decided we would go to another buddy's house to kind of hang out. You know, we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house. The three of us hang out, kill some time. We drink a pint of Hennessy between us. And it's now about 11 o'clock. So we go to exit his apartment to go to the party and he's living with his mother. So his mother from the kitchen, you know, she yells out as we're walking out the door, you know, now y'all be careful tonight. You hear? Mm. And of course we all reply, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We'll be careful. You know, we're good. Clearly we had no intentions of being careful that night because we're already drunk, frankly, and we're driving drunk right to the party. Yeah. Sadly, this is what we all did um, every day. And, and and never thought twice about it. And so we get to the party, see a bunch of old classmates. You know, we're smoking weed. We're drinking more alcohol, of course. We celebrate the new year. Everything is great. We exit the party at about 1215. And, you know, I, it's, it's funny. Not funny. It's interesting. My brother, just the other day when I was at his house, um, he told me, he said, Martin, he said, because my brother hadn't talked about this you know, more than a handful of times over the last, you know, uh, two decades hmm. um, because it's very traumatic for him. And I'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But he, he said, he said, you know, he said, we tried to we tried to offer to drive for you that night. I said, you hmm. did? Because to my recollection, to my recollection, nobody offered to take my keys or to drive. And he said, bro, hmm. I'm telling you, we tried to 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 drive for you. And you said you were good. So mm-hmm. that was that was really uh, revealing to me. And he just told me that a couple of weeks ago when wow. I was there. So anyway, so we get into my vehicle. I take my friend home. 
without incident. I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And I remember how exhausted I felt because I had only had one chicken, three piece chicken meal from Popeye's the whole day. And I'm drinking all day and all night. So I hadn't had much to eat. I'm exhausted. I knew I didn't have to work the next day because it was a holiday so I could sleep in. So on the freeway, I'm like, I just want to get my brother home so I can get home and go to sleep. So on the freeway, I began to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And, you know, this makes my brother nervous. He's like, man, you know, you, you need to slow down. You know, the police are out, especially, you know, it being a holiday and all. And I thought, well, that's a good point. That does make sense. So I went ahead and slowed down for the time being. We exited the freeway about 10 minutes later. So now we're driving in a residential area down uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Portland. Mm. And again, I get, you know, impatient. I just want to get him home. So I, I start speeding to about 60 miles an hour in like a 30 zone. And this this makes my brother angry. And he's like, you know, slow down before we crash. You know, and I tell him, I'm calm down. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I've done it a hundred times. Yeah. Right. hundred times. Um, but just to, you know, appease him, keep him quiet. I went ahead and slowed down. So we drive for about 10 more minutes and I'm just about to get into the left hand turning lane to drop him off at our parents house. And then, in, 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 you know, in an instant, he realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he said, hey, man, let's let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, great, here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. So we drive for a couple blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's an intersection and it's this little mini mart we need to get to to get the cigarettes. It's just beyond the intersection. And so I'm two blocks from that that intersection and I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, Ray, there was no way I was going to make this light. And I knew that mm -hmm. like like it wasn't that I was so inebriated that I thought, oh, maybe I can make it. I knew I wasn't going to make this light but I just want to get these stupid cigarettes. I want to drop him off and I want to get home and go to bed. So yeah. I'm not waiting for this light. So I immediately punched the gas and I remember, you know, I, I became, you know, so focused on getting through that light. And frankly, I would have sped right past where we needed to get to it, it, it you know, at that, at that rate of speed anyway. So it just, mm. it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but again, I've been drinking all day and all night. So, yeah. you know, all yeah. bets are off. So I speed through the light and literally within seconds, Boom. I mean, just this, this earth shattering crash. And then I remember the airbag, you know, embellished my face and it feels like I'm being suffocated by a parachute. And then everything seemed to kind of go in slow motion as my car, you know, kind of comes to a slow winding halt. And my first thought was to make sure my brother's OK. So I, yeah. I, I look in the passenger seat. He's starting to move a little bit. So I'm relieved that we're both alive. This is good. Um, a guy on foot comes rushing up to the driver's side door, you know, frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle. Now, you got to realize at this point, I'm still very, very superficial. Uh, my prized possession was my vehicle. It mm -hmm. was a status symbol of success. You know, I'm still very much in that mind frame that that all these external things validate me yeah. and so i'm walking around my car and i'm looking at my my custom rims that are utterly destroyed the entire front end is smashed inward and like my heart is broken because my prized possession is now in a heap of crumpled metal yeah and then my brother gets my attention 
and he starts to point across the, across the street where the car has spun about 60 or 70 feet before it stopped. And he said, he said, man, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and it does not look like they're moving. Hmm. And so when he told me that, like just this, this, this flood of, of, of kind of the realization of the magnitude of what I had just done comes sweeping mm-hmm. over me. And I'm like, Oh my God, what have I done? And of course, within seconds, license sirens are everywhere, you know, rushing to the scene. And so the policemen are there, the first responders, the firemen are, are trying to extract whoever else is in that vehicle carefully from that vehicle. And I remember the officer was asking me, you know, what, well, you know, have you been drinking tonight? How much have you had? And I'm trying to be totally compliant. Like I feel terribly about what I just did. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I've been drinking. I probably shouldn't have been driving, you know, and, and, and you know, I ran, ran through the red light. Like I'm, you know, from a legal standpoint, your attorney would say, don't say any of that. Right. Sure. But this is a human moment. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I feel so terrible about what I just did. And so about five minutes into that interview, five or 10 minutes into that interview, that officer confirmed to me, you know, what I had really in my heart of hearts known to be true, which was that person who was lying on the pavement had perished. And he told me that another passenger was being driven to the trauma center um, just blocks away. And so I'm placed under arrest. I'm put into the back of the cruiser. And we head for downtown for processing. Now, mind you, I'd already done time in prison. So I know, Ray, I know, like, I am going to go to prison for a really long time. I knew that Oregon had mandatory minimum sentencing laws for any what's considered a person-to-person violent crime. And I very much knew that manslaughter in the first degree was anytime you're impaired and you kill somebody in a crash. That is manslaughter in the first degree. And I know that. And so I know at this point, at least I, I'm doing 10 years because one person has passed away. I know another person is, is in critical condition, at least. And yeah. so I'm, I'm driving past my parents' house in the police car because this happened just four blocks from my parents' house. And I take one last look down the street and I know like I am not going to see that house for at least 10 years. Yeah. Now, 10 minutes into this interview, the ride downtown. Ray, I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of back and forth, you know, about the crash, as you can imagine. And about 10 minutes into that ride, I could hear it, at least what sounded like um, what came over the police radio was that there was another passenger who had been pronounced dead at the scene. And so I asked the officer, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did, did, did they just say that someone else was in that vehicle and they didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. Mm-hmm. So now I know that I am going to prison for roughly 20 years, day for day. I'm 24 years old and like, this is my life. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, we'd really love it if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast or rating on Spotify. And of course, please feel free to invite somebody into the conversation. If you feel like you have a story to share on the podcast, why not apply to be a guest? You can do so by completing the form on the podcast description or find it on stackingdays.com. That's S-T-A-C-K-N-D-A-Y-S.com. But for now, let's jump back into the conversation. Man, man, you know, 
obviously you know that that's an extremely um heart-wrenching story to hear to I, I can see you you know recounting it and i'm sure you've done it hundreds of times at this point it sounds like though it's still very much alive you know in in you um you know even having been so so long ago uh i can just only imagine the fear i can only imagine um the things that are are flowing through your mind the shame like all of that and um I mean, I, you know, again, my job is to keep things moving on this and I've heard your story, but to hear it, you know, face to face with you is, 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 is incredibly impactful and incredibly powerful. Um, so let's, let me try to get back on track here. Uh, what happens at that point, right? You are in the cruiser, obviously you go through processing, you go through the courts, you have a, a reckoning with your family, I'm sure. You have a reckoning at some point with the family of family of the victims. And in addition to that, you are now, you know, certifiably behind bars for the next two decades. So talk to me about what the next chapter uh, and how that unfolds for you. Sure. So in order to kind of set that up, I have to take you to about three or four days after the crash happened. So everything right. is still fresh and I am in my cell. And I'm minding my own business. And um, someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper underneath my door. And I couldn't understand why I didn't ask anybody to see a paper. I figured there must be something important in there for me to read. So I picked this newspaper up, began to thumb through it. And I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And I began to read this article. And with each paragraph that I read that morning, for the first time in several days, my faceless victims became people mm. and these people had an incredible story yeah. and their story was that they were in long-term recovery one has 16 years clean one has 17 years clean and sober they were active in the recovery community in portland they worked for volunteers of america they volunteered with mothers against drunk driving they would watch women's children so that ladies could attend AA and NA meetings on a regular basis. They were pillars in the recovery community. The night that this happened, Ray, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the convention center in Portland mm -hmm. when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And the columnist you know, he, he had highlighted the he called it a palpable irony, which is what I, I named my first book, Palpable Irony, for that reason. He said it is a palpable irony that the, the folks who had devoted their lives to help people get clean and sober would have theirs cut short by a drunk driver. Hmm. And then he said something at the end of that article that changed my life forever and set everything into motion for the next what would be 17 and a half years in prison. He said. Perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. Mm. And it was such a heavy statement, right? I'm, I'm three or four days into this, this, this saga and I'm 24 years old and I know I'm going to go to prison for roughly 20 years day for day. So I couldn't fully like understand and appreciate the essence of what he has said, but I also knew it was something I could not ignore. 
Like it was so profound and it hit so deeply. And so for the next several months, by this point, I had gotten back to my, you know, my Christian roots and I'm reading the Bible and I'm praying and I'm, you know, uh, having this fellowship with, with a few guys on the unit. And, and I'm literally, I'm meditating on that phrase, you know, to try to ascertain how I was going to apply those words to my life. And then it finally came to me one day that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on the legacies and literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to help others who are struggling, right, in addiction um, uh, with mental health issues um, and, and, and to prevent this from ever happening. So in that moment, that's I vowed to do that. I didn't know what shape that would take. While in yeah. prison, I didn't know how long I was going to be in prison. I knew it was going to be a long time. And so that so that became my focus. That was my mission. That was my purpose. So I get to I, I take a plea bargain for 17 and a half years, a few months later. And this is day for day. You cannot earn a single day off for good behavior, for working a job, for getting an education. It is day for day. Two hundred and ten months. See you later. So mm-hmm. I get to state prison. I. You know, I figure if I'm going to if I'm going to honor this mission to help others who are struggling, I probably should get an education and go into counseling. Right. So I get to state prison at the time I find out they're offering you could take one college course per per semester for like twenty five bucks each. So I say, OK, let me let me start there. So I start to take these college courses and I'm getting A's. I'm getting B's. I'm starting to gain confidence in my ability um, I'm starting to take studies, African-American studies, which made me want to then um, read other books about African-American civilization, ancient civilization. Um, and, and I'm learning so much about our people mm-hmm. that I had not like I had only heard about, you know, slavery and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And, but like there's so much more that was out there that helped to frankly shape a healthy identity as right. a black man in America. Like, I'm really starting to feel good about myself as a black person for the first time. Mm. And so it was much more than just a formal education for me. It was it was, you know, it was it was really, a, um, you know, this this it helped to ignite this internal process of of establishing a healthy identity, a healthy self-concept, which would lead to healthier self-esteem. And so um, and so I thrust myself into that. And then about three years into my sentence, my dad passes away. But my dad made sure, made sure that all of his hard work for all those years would, would help his kids when he wasn't here. And so what that meant was I was able to um, get a portion of his pension along with my brother and my sister. And then he also left us life insurance money. And now I have a, a, a chunk of money that I'm able to invest into, into my future. So instead of taking one class here, one class there, now I'm taking classes from major universities uh, via correspondence. From mm-hmm. Louisiana State University and Indiana University, and I parlayed all of that into an associate's degree in 2010, and then I got a bachelor's in sociology um, from Colorado State University in, in 2013, and then I went on to get a master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. And so through this process, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm peeling back the layers of my addiction. And criminality and kind of those early negative behavioral patterns that I that I adopted and understanding mm-hmm. from a sociological standpoint, those factors that, that, that went went into that. And then from a psychosocial kind of individual standpoint and how those things affected me that all kind of wrapped up into this 
perfect recipe, if you will, of of self-destruction. Right. And, yeah. and addiction for me. And so as I'm learning all these things, now I'm starting to mentor other guys on the yard. Right. Because guys saw that the way I did my time was was very different than a lot of than the way a lot of guys did their time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I exercise and, and all that. But I wasn't just all about, you know, getting buff and walking around the yard. And, hey, I'm the tough guy. Like I went to school. I was a tutor. I went to church. I went to AA. Right. And so guys saw that and they're like, man, this guy's different. So now I'm starting to like kind of mentor in an, in an informal sense, young guys coming in the system before they would get swept up by the prison culture and gangs and politics and all that. And guys would like open up to me, Ray. I kid you, they would open up to me about childhood trauma. Mm. I don't even know if I was, you know, uh, you know, qualified to be hearing these right. conversations, but like they just wanted a safe space to, to talk about this stuff. Talk yeah. about being molested as kids, stuff you don't talk about in prison, right? Sure. I mean, in life, but let alone in prison. But guys felt safe with me. And so that kind of conferred to me that, um, you know, that, that the counseling is definitely where I need to be. But how can I kind of formalize this, right? So I, I transferred to another prison in 2016. And I know that even though I have a master's degree at this point, I still need the clinical hours to get certified as a substance abuse counselor. So I talked to the clinical director of a program at the prison and tell them everything that I had done and how much money I invested in my my my, my future and I want to be a counselor. And he was like, well, you know, we don't really have a program that can kind of get you certified as a counselor. But because you have done so much on your own already, let me see if I can talk to my boss and see, see what we can do. Long story short, they cut a bunch of red tape. I still had five and a half years left at that point. You had to be under a year to get into that program. But his boss, um, you know, allowed me to enter into the program as a participant first to understand the program and and what it's all about. And then I could uh, uh, work as an intern to accrue those clinical hours. Now, it was in that program, Ray, that I actually came to understand the difference between sobriety and recovery. Because frankly, it had been 12 years and I hadn't had a drink and I got this master's degree and I'm doing these programs. And so for me, I'm in recovery. But no, I I just been sober. Right. Yeah. I didn't understand what internal triggers and external triggers and relapse warning signs. And, you know, I learned about the, the biopsychosocial spiritual model of recovery, and like all these facets that went into um, uh, maintaining a, a life of recovery. Right. Mm-hmm. And having it be fulfilling and meaningful and all of that. And so now I'm really kind of getting some momentum I'm like, OK, I've got my formal education in psychology and sociology. Now I'm understanding what what recovery is really about and what it's rooted in. And so now I can really pour into guys. And so I graduated that program seven months later. Now I'm working as an intern in the program. I'm running the group a couple of days a week. I'm facilitating um, orientations. Uh, uh, assessments. I'm doing one-on-ones. I'm getting documentation uh, notes. You know, I'm, I'm doing all the clinical stuff. And so that was really, really affirming to me as well, because now my identity is shaped around helping other people in both a formal sense and an informal sense, because I was still just, you know, have conversations with guys on the yard about what was going on. And I was able to give them advice and just listen. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and so, and so it was, it was a total 180 and how I was operating in my addiction versus now, because in my addiction, everything was about me and my validation came from 
this superficial lens that I operated through and I need people to tell me how good I was. Right. right. And that's what validated me. But that was fleeting. That's not sustainable validation. Right. No. Now I am giving everything that I that I've learned and that, you know, my experiences and my education and I'm pouring that into other guys and making a difference in that way. And that's what validated me. That mm. made me feel good. That made me feel that I had a, an actual purpose. Right. And I wasn't just kind of, you know, wandering through life, kind of aimlessly looking for people to tell me how great I am. And so it was it was this whole shift in my in my mindset as far as how I was going to um, use my energy and, and, and what I was going to live for, frankly. Mm. And mm. so, yeah, that was that was what got me set on this path. Man, I think that that's beautiful. You 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 mentioned earlier. I mean, the the the, the final line in that um, that Oregonian piece that you know the the irony was palatable. I mean, not only from the standpoint of of you know the work ultimately that you that you worked towards, but the fact that you found yourself, you found Martin in prison, where oftentimes people go and lose themselves even more so. You know what I mean? So like the irony of it all, you know, rings extremely, extremely loud in your story. Um, and I mean, I know that that's not lost on you at all. I, mean, I, I, you know, the fact that you were looking at all that time in front of you and you took, you know, complete ownership of the days and then those days strung, strung together as months and those months strung together as years. And now you're, you know, you're, you're looking at your release. You know, and you have this new lease on your own life that I'm sure when you walked in there probably seems as though it was over. Yes, absolutely. When you're looking at 17 and a half years and you're you're in your early, you know, mid 20s, like it's hard to fathom what life is going to look like when you're 42. Right. I went at 24. You know, those numbers were inverse. I got out at 42. And so um but like you said, I, I had a purpose. I had a mission. I had a, a focus and a drive. And I kind of kept my head down and plugged away at these different goals. I ended up writing two books and publishing those while I was inside. Um, and then I worked toward my certification. I got I got certified as a recovery mentor first and then the following year as a substance abuse counselor. And then um, around that time, I had also begun to tell my story at DUI victim impact panels inside the prison. So okay. they started a program in 2015 and they would bring in someone from the community who had lost a loved one to a DUI driver hmm. to come in and tell their story. And it, it was a room, uh, we did it in the chapel and there was 50, 50, we don't call them inmates anymore in Oregon. We say adults in custody to kind of get away from that dehumanization. But so there were 50 adults in custody in a circle there voluntarily, some never going home, doing double life, you know, but they heard about this program where people from the community were going to come in and share about how they had lost a loved one to a DUI driver. And then one of us on the inside who was there for that type of crime would tell our story of how we perpetrated this crime, obviously being fully contrite and remorseful and accountable and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, Ray, it, it was such a healing cathartic beautiful environment like mm. these people some people came in and they were they were hell-bent on coming in to tell tell these these guys who are locked up you know how how bad they are for what they did and how they're harming society and and by the time that meeting was over there were tears there were hugs um people got healing 
from mm-hmm. those from those spaces. And so I was a part of that for the next several years. And that also kind of uh, affirmed to me that once I got out of prison, you know, I didn't want that. I didn't want my story to stay there in those spaces. In I needed yeah. it out here as well. And so I got out in, in June of 21. So it's coming up on three years here in a few months. And I knew I was going to be a, a substance abuse counselor. I put all my energy into that. So I got a job doing that uh, a couple months out with Lines for Life, which is the it's a regional nonprofit based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we're mainly known for taking calls on the suicide prevention line, 988. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also so in Oregon, they had decriminalized uh, small amounts of drugs. And so instead of locking people up, they would give them a citation and then they would call me or one of my colleagues. We would do a screening with them over the phone and then offer them uh, community based resources. Mm-hmm. And that and so that was how I spent um, my days. However, uh, you know, in my private life, I was really um you know, making a push to get my story out there. And so I started speaking at some some local kind of DUI victim impact panels. And then I went on like this whole uh, podcast tour, if you will, because I felt that was like the easiest, quickest way to kind of get my story out there. Mm-hmm. And then and then um, and then last year I had the goal to get in front of more live audiences. And so um, I, I, Ray, I, w- I can't tell you how many emails I sent to different organizations and schools and colleges and, you know, uh, 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 you know, all these different programs. And lo and behold, I started getting some interest. And so to, to, to kind of sum it up last year, I spoke at five major conferences uh, between Oregon to, to New York. I spoke at 20 to 25 um, DUI victim impact panels and alcohol highway safety classes. I did a college tour in New York with the Save a Life tour to speak at several colleges. Um, I've spoken at high schools, um, you know, and now and and so this year for 2024, you know, I wanted to um, uh, build on that and to start to uh, create kind of short videos for Mm -hmm. programs um, that are tailored toward adolescents who might just be getting into drugs and alcohol or having some mischief at school or getting in trouble. And so now I've been able to contract with two different um, uh, agencies to create those videos um, for their audiences as well. And so and, and that same mentality, that mindset that I've that I've had out here in the two and a half years, as far as like setting goals from year to year, I'm not a New Year's resolution guy. I am a goal-setting guy with a, with a, a, a very pinpointed, firm focus on what I want to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. And I know what I need to do to get there. And so that was the the mentality that I operated by for 17 and a half years. That's what got me through 17 and a half years of prison, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I knew where I was going for the next year. I knew what I wanted to achieve, and I knew how I needed to get there. And so I have been so incredibly blessed. Um and just to kind of cap off, you know, as far as what I'm doing today. So I'm doing the public speaking. I was just promoted four months ago at my job to director of cultural engagement. So what that means is so even though I live in Pennsylvania, I fly to Portland every month. I'm there for a week to two weeks. I run a small team. We go into spaces of color and mm-hmm. we do, for instance, we do mental health first aid trainings in barbershops and hair salons 
and churches, because we know that's where a lot of black folks are comfortable talking to people about what's going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that the barbers, the hairstylists, the pastors, the deacons, they are trained in mental health first aid so that they can you know, be able to respond properly and appropriately if somebody's struggling to be able to ascertain if they're struggling with with some suicidal ideation and how to get them connected in the right way. Right. So we do this skill building in our community to empower our community to help our community. You know, we have gone into uh, a prison uh, uh, recently and we're going to go back in in April because I am looking to bring mental health first aid training into the prisons as well. Right. You think about the second largest population of black folks in, in Oregon is in prison. Right. So we need to reach the community where they are. Um, we do a healing summit. So, so so we do this. We do a lot of cultural engagement work in spaces of color. I use my story as kind of a way to um, open up and, and start the conversation to destigmatize. Mm-hmm conversations around mental health and substance use and, 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 and suicidal ideation. Right. And then, and then we, we, um, we have a substantive conversation around that. And then we always bring culturally responsive uh, mental health and substance use uh, treatment resources whenever we show up in those spaces. So it's really come full circle. I am, I am so incredibly blessed for the, the life that I have um, I travel. I've been to the Bahamas. I've been to D.C. I've been to Vegas. I've been to, um, you know, m- many places. And um, the beautiful thing, Ray, is that I am sober. Mm-hmm. I, I remember what I did the previous day, which is a great <laughs> thing. Um, and like I, I embrace life and life. Life is just so awesome. Uh, sober. And so that is that is my story, man. Martin, uh, you know, I feel so uh, filled up with uh, with gratitude when I hear you talk about your story because I can see the gratitude that's coming through in you. Like I I I I look at you and I try to um, to envision the, what that twenty four year old Martin looks like, what he was thinking about, you know, all those years ago, and looking at you as a fully developed, you know, you know, man who is, you know quite literally you know penning his own life um you know from this point on and and it's not just because you just got out of of prison two and a half years ago you've been doing this for a while you you just have an opportunity where there's just more space for you to do it in right and uh i just i just want to you know congratulate you man for for you know crawling out of that hole that you were in and for taking ownership of your life for taking advantage of all the opportunities that were in front of you and and for the impact that you're that you're making today back into the community that you clearly see you know needs it man so i just want to give you that shout out directly i know that you hear this all the time but i think that you just you you're living a fantastic perfect purpose driven life and and i really do appreciate being a part of that even for you know an hour and change today man i really do appreciate it Absolutely right. No, I, I I truly truly appreciate that. And um, you know, hearing it from you is different than hearing it from 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 someone else, frankly. And so, um, no, that 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 means a great deal to me. And, and frankly, I think, you know, when we have gone through different obstacles in our lives and we and we find a way to overcome them, I think honestly we have a duty to go right. back to our community to do what we can to try to use those experiences and whatever else we learned along the way, education or, 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 or otherwise, to help the next fellow man or woman um, who is struggling. 
right? Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, why, you know, why did we go through all what of happened? that? Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, it's it, it, con- contributing back into the culture is is key, you know, and 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 it doesn't have to be monumental, you know, but if you can touch one one individual and, you know, and, and give them something that maybe you didn't have or I didn't have, I think that that, you know, clearly can go a long way because, I mean, that one individual can change the trajectory of someone's entire life. And you know that. Right. Um, That's right. Well, and I'm, I'm going to finish this off by, you know, just asking you two questions that I ask of everyone. And, and, and I think that your perspective is going to be, uh, you know, is going to be, you know, just great to, to hear. Uh, one is, you know, for, for, for someone who's sitting there, you know, looking at their, at their relationship with alcohol and don't necessarily know what the first step would be for them to take you with all the experience that you have and all of your training and, and education, what would you suggest to that, to that individual? Uh, the important thing is that you reach out to someone, whether it be a trusted friend or family member to say, Hey, I, I think I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm not, um, like I'm not doing well. I'm drinking a little too much. Um, because even, you know, if you're not ready to like go to a formal treatment program or anything like that, um, at least you have someone to confide in. Someone that you trust is going to tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear necessarily, right? That's yeah. important. We have a lot of friends and family who, God bless them, they support us, but like they don't always give us the best advice or tell us what we need to hear. So it's got to be somebody who's going to keep it real and, and you know, be that support, but also kind of be that accountability partner, if you will. Um, but I, you know, I would hope that uh, even if you started there, that eventually you would um, you would actually get with a professional counselor, mm-hmm. a substance abuse counselor. And I will invite anybody, um, especially folks of color, to reach out to me directly and I can find some good counseling in your area um, that is going to be culturally specific. Like that's 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 what I do. And so mm-hmm. um, so that way you can be comfortable with the people that you're you know, that you're seeking help from. And so and so there's that I, I you know, I'm a, a, a member of AA, right? That that's that that's what works for me. Right. So I go to AA. I do online meetings. Um, I have an app on my phone called Meeting Guide. Okay. Um, so I, I can um, uh, I can share that link uh, uh, with Ray you can put it in the show notes or what have you. But um, there's online meetings happening all throughout the day. Uh, there are in-person meetings, depending on where you live. And uh, again, you're connecting with other people who know what it feels like to struggle with this with this disease and um, and can give you some support um, in your journey. I appreciate that. We'll certainly put that put that that link in, in the show notes uh, as a resource. Last question I have for you, Martin, is and I think this is particularly important in our communities just because, you know, sometimes when we figure out somebody struggling, it's a little bit too late um, for various reasons. In your experience, how would someone have known that you were in a dark spot, that you were struggling with a lot of things without you having told them explicitly? Yeah, just just the amount that I was drinking. My sister, like when she read my book as an adult, she was like, Martin, like, I thought you just liked to drink. I had no idea you were struggling with these internal things. Right. Mm -hmm. So she saw the behavior. She just didn't know what was behind the behavior. So if you see somebody who is isolating more. Maybe they're not, you know, going out and 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 you know, being with friends or family as much as they used to or their 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 mood and affect um seems to be off, right? Like check on them. 
like really check on them. Not, Hey, how you doing? Like, Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. Like I'm yeah. here. You know what I mean? Yep. And so just to be, be cognizant and mindful, uh, like, you know, the, the behavioral patterns um, of your friends and family, when you start to see some changes in that, or if you were out with some friends, a friend, and they're drinking a little more than maybe they used to, like get them by themselves, not in front of the whole group, but just say, hey, I've noticed blah, blah, blah. Are you doing okay? Yep. Do you need some help? I'm here. You know what I mean? And so I think that could that could really go a long way when people know that um, that others um, are there for them, that they're not going to judge them, but they genuinely care about them and want to support them. Yeah, I think it's important in our community to call that out because we oftentimes don't want to touch those conversations because they're also uncomfortable for the person who is, you know, making the approach. Uh, but I, but we got to do it, you know, because there's too many folks out here who are struggling, feel like they're doing it on their own uh, because they are not under the impression that there are safe spaces even close by that they can uh, they can turn to. So I appreciate that, Martin. Uh, where can folks find you, man? I want to make sure that folks can can get get a hold of you. Can you know obviously learn more about what you're up to, and uh, and just like be able to tap into a lot of the amazing things that you're up to these days. Absolutely. So I'm only on one social media platform, which is Instagram. So it's at Martin L Lockett, and then my website is martinlockett.com. So those would be the two easiest ways to to get a hold of me. Awesome. Awesome. Martin, look, brother, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on to this Stack of Days podcast, sharing your story, for making, you know, all the change happen in your life and, you know, change happen in, in the lives of people around you. I mean, you're you're certainly a blessing. And I know it took a long way to get there for you to feel that. But you're here now, man. And don't ever, 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 ever dim your light, you know, for anybody because it shines bright. And, and I think it's extremely important in, in our world today. So I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you so much, brother. This was truly an honor. You know, I feel like this is a mama, I made it moment. You know, <laughs> I, I was on stacking days. So, you know, uh, seriously, oh, you you are doing incredible work for our community, for our people. And I'm just so honored um, and blessed to, to, to have been a small part of it today. So thank you so much for having me. You got it, brother. All right, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll catch you next week on uh, the Stacking Days podcast. Thanks for listening in. I appreciate you guys listening to the Stacking Days podcast. I hope this episode added value to your recovery and wellness journey. Before we go our separate ways, let's connect on social. You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Stacking Days or via the website www.stackingdays.com. By supporting the show, you can play a direct role in amplifying people of color in their pursuit of recovery. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe or hit the follow button. This way you'll never miss an episode all while playing an active part in creating the ecosystem where diverse voices and healing matter. This show is for the purpose of education and connection and is not a replacement for therapy or recovery care. For more information on the resources and support available, take a look at SAMHSA and some other resources shared in the description. Until we meet again, be well one day at a time.